Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. I am your host, Jose Sanchez, and today we have a guest host on the podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Annabelle Fay. I'm taking the place of Jen to the best of my ability today. Yeah, so welcome, Annabelle. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And today we have doctoral candidate Victoria Pajowski on the podcast to talk with us about probation and the control of drugs and alcohol. Just to introduce Victoria a little bit more. So as you said, Jose Victoria Pajowski, she's a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota. She is a Mellon ACLS dissertation completion fellow, as well as a Harry Frank Guggenheim Emerging Scholar Award recipient. Her work examines the intersections of coercion and care in criminal justice in varied sites such as treatment courts, probation, bail, and domestic violence services. Her work can be found in Punishment in Society, Law and Social Inquiry, and RSF, the Russell Sage Foundation, Journal of the Social Sciences. In her spare time, she tries to garden the stress away and is on an ongoing quest to grow the perfect tomato. Thank you for joining us, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to talk with you both. I love that. Now we have tomato on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. Tom- what is it? Tomato. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we all know what you meant. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and so for today's episode, we're going to start out with a discussion about probation, drugs, and alcohol, kind of broadly. Then we're going to move into an article that was written by Victoria and then we're going to, time permitting, close it out with discussing some of the work that Victoria is doing for her dissertation. So with that being said, Annabelle, why don't you do us the honors of taking the first crack Thank at Victoria? You. So Victoria, over the last several decades, we've seen the occurrence of some major shifts that have impacted the way the criminal justice system operates. Given our topic for today on drug crimes, there are two shifts we'd like to discuss. Firstly, can you talk about the war on drugs, thinking about the causes and outcomes stemming from this policy shift? Yeah, so the war on drugs is really a set of policies, practices, and institutions, right? And even discourses, political discourses, that arose really in the 80s and particularly early 90s that were centered on criminalizing and eradicating drug use. So one of the most important outcomes to sort of headline with is that the policies and practices of the war on drugs altogether really help to drive racial disparities in the American criminal justice system, right? It's the most racially disparate form of policing and practice in the system today. But we kind of see it at different levels, right? So I'll talk briefly, you know, first, a bunch of legislation was passed, right? And these laws expanded state and federal mandatory minimums, right, for drug offenses. So making it harder for judges to sentence down for people convicted of drug crimes. And another really critical piece of this legislation was denying public housing actually to entire families, even when just one member was accused of drug crime. So serious ramifications on the legislative level. But What's also important is it kind of grows in this context of really aggressive policing practices, right? So it's a cluster of practices that lots of good research have found is quite racialized and spatialized, meaning kind of centered on Black and brown low-income neighborhoods in particular. 
I know you, um, Marissa Omori, you've had on the podcast, she's written about this, but we can think about these as sort of proactive policing and broken windows policing or quality of life policing, which really have, again, like centered on sort of low level crimes and the enforcement around level crimes, such as, for instance, marijuana use, right, as this larger effort to kind of eradicate bigger crimes in these communities and neighborhoods. So in relation to drugs, Fagan and Geller have this great paper called Pot as Pretext, and they do a great job of showing the ways that Black and Hispanic neighborhoods are particularly targeted for marijuana enforcement. And the use of pretext is important. So, right, so like even just someone smelling like marijuana is a pretext for an officer to question that person, hassle them, search them, et cetera, right? So it ends up being this sort of gateway to further criminalization. So altogether, this sort of legislation and enforcement, you know, both, of course, demonizes drug use and criminalizes all forms of drug use, but also links it particularly to Black and brown communities. And it gave way to this like larger, it was sold on this sort of larger political rhetoric, right? That demonized and racialized drug use. And so it's interesting because, right, more popularly, we see this being questioned much more regularly. The idea that all drug use is bad, that marijuana is sort of a demon drug, that it's a gateway drug. But in many ways, a lot of this infrastructure still exists to enforce aggressive, to like enforce aggressively and police aggressively and sanction aggressively. I also kind of want to like situate or talk about the growth of treatment courts, which actually is happening at the same time, right? It seems sort of contradictory on its face. But as we're seeing this really increased enforcement, increased numbers of folks being pushed in for drug use into the criminal justice system, we see various places, it started in Miami, drug courts, right? Sort of rethinking jail particularly as a sanction and trying to start what are called drug treatment courts. And we'll get into more of that later. But all I want to say here is that these are actually, they're often talked about as a response to the drug war, but they're kind of coming up and proliferating at the same time, which I think is sort of historically and legally and procedurally important. Yeah, so, that is super interesting because yeah, I did. I always thought that it was like as a response because you know you hear people saying like the failed war on drugs, and they like you see maybe like drug courts gaining popularity, but yeah, you always hear people talking about them as we're responding to the drug wars with these drug courts. So yeah, hearing that they actually came up simultaneously is an interesting, interesting and, tidbit. And even at that time, I would say like. The pioneers would still be, you know, critical of the sort of people processing of just like arresting, 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 right? But the fact is, it was it was at the same time, right? It's not like a per se a response, right? These sorts of right. logics have always been kind of at odds, or at least competing in some ways and collaborating in other ways over the history of like American criminal justice, right? So drug courts are kind of this contemporary iteration of that that's existing, coexisting with harsh punishment. Right. And then talking about like moving from the war on drugs or like responding to the war on drugs, we've seen a second shift very, very recently, like, like a couple of weeks type of recent. So on October 6th, we saw President Biden pardon many people who had been convicted of federal marijuana related crimes. Can you tell us a little more about so 
the context that preceded this decision? And if do you see foresee any like impacts coming from this decision beyond just, okay, now you're forgiven for this crime? Sure, sure. So the word federal here is, is so important for this discussion. So in the US, we <laughs> we have a sort of what's how do we describe it? Well, the states are kind of like our own little countries here, right? Like criminal justice operates wildly differently across the country in many ways. And so when we see trends, we often see them in sort of states first, right? And the federal jurisdiction is somewhat limited over the states. So more specifically to your point, there's been a growing tension over time, right? Because states are beginning to either legalize the use or decriminalize marijuana or the third option, make it legal for medical purposes, right? And so this is all while at the federal level, marijuana is still illegal, right? And so 19, I think it's 19 states have legalized and 37 more states allow it for medical reasons, which causes a lot of confusion and problems, right? You've got two really distinct ideas and laws and practices around marijuana. So this has been going on for a while, as has discussion about the drug war and its racialized impacts, which Biden did reference in in his announcement. So to this point, most enforcement around actual simple possession happens at state and local levels, right? Federal law enforcement is not really set up or not really doing like simple possession type work, right? So at the federal level, this part is going to kind of, it's going to touch a smaller number of people than I might like, right? So according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, actually no one is currently incarcerated in a federal prison for simple possession. There are people with criminal records who are now eligible for this pardon, right? And that that group of folks who are not incarcerated but have these convictions is about 6,500 people. And can be meaningful. What does it mean to be forgiven, right? Like in this specific context, it means they get some civil civic rights back, right? So voting, serving on a jury, but, and only, and only if they don't have other felonies on their record that bar them from those things. So it is a bit of a complex thing, right? People have to be eligible otherwise on their criminal records. And, and these are the specific rights, but it, a pardon does not remove it from your record. Interestingly, you have to then apply for expungement to actually have, which is a separate legal process, right? To have it removed actually for purposes like, you know, getting a job, whatever, you know, for those other reasons that you don't want it on your record, right? So that's that piece. And I'm sorry if I'm being a little long-winded, feel free to cut me off. (laughs) But in terms of impacts, like it's a larger question on these other pieces. So Biden also urged governors to issue the same mass clemency, right, or pardons. And so if they were to heed that call, that could could be much more meaningful, right? But I think, and I'm not super... I'm not an expert on this, but there's some at least political skepticism that the governors who are sort of adverse to this idea are not necessarily going to change based on this urging, right? Like it's not like they're forced to do it in any way, right? And governors that are more sympathetic to this idea have already, have in many cases already done similar types of things. So, 
So that one's more of a question mark. The one that's like a little more potentially impactful is that President Biden also urged the Health and Human Services Secretary to review how marijuana is actually classified under the law. So this is when you hear scheduling, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, et cetera. Right. This is, that's a classification system. So right now, marijuana is considered a Schedule 1 drug, which means, you know, like along with heroin, that means there's no medical use for it, right? You can see where this tension with the states comes in, too. What's, so one thing about it is it's really hard to research what the effects of marijuana are if it allegedly under the law has no medical impacts, right? So the reviewing of the scheduling could result in making it a schedule two, which might help open up some research opportunities, but that is pretty incremental, right? What you might, to get to see a really big impact, what you might look for is obviously for it to be totally legalized or descheduled, we would say, right? But who knows? We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, but that, I mean, if it is descheduled, like, that could potentially pave the way for pretty massive changes, right? But I guess right. we have to kind of keep our eyes up and see what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to confess, and I probably shouldn't do this on the podcast <laughs> being a criminologist, but <sighs> I'm not super great about keeping up with the news, mostly because sometimes I feel like it's just going to like raise my blood pressure <laughs> to levels that I don't need. So I actually, the first time I heard about this happening was throughout communication and you kind of like mentioned it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I went and was like, okay, I should probably Google this and see what's actually happening. And I'm not going to lie. When I saw federal related crimes, I was like, okay, this is one of those more like symbolic things. Cause you, that's one of those crimes that typically gets handled at the state level. And mm -hmm. in order for it to go up to the federal level, it usually has to be something like you're trafficking like pounds of marijuana across state lines or whatever. So like, I don't know that, like, how many people are actually going to be impacted by this. But mm -hmm. so, yeah, I kind of had some intuition that that was kind of going to be the case. But that second yeah. part that you brought up seems like it could be, like, could make things a little more interesting with the reclassification <laughs> of marijuana. Yeah, that's kind of a, a long time coming, I think. Definitely. I think it's, yeah, you know, it's so hard to say, right? We're very, it's very speculative right now. And I think there are definitely some critiques out there that this is like too symbolic, too incremental. But to me, yeah, we won't know until we find out what happens with that classification. Because I think it's, I think that's potentially a big deal. There's been a weird sort of, yeah, I just think that tension between the state, like sort of state medicalization and federal schedule one classification is, is interesting so that is being sort of addressed and we'll see well victoria i was actually going to ask i mean i know that it's going to be hard to look at how as you guys are talking about what the impact of this is going to be in terms of incarceration so president biden's decision yeah again he will have an impact on those who are incarcerated but we also imagine it will also have big impacts on those under other forms of supervision like probation which is the main focus of our topic today mm -hmm. so just shifting to that could you just discuss what you think might happen with probation you know it's possible nothing <laughs> i really appreciate your honesty <laughs> but, and also i appreciate that <laughs> And I say this because, you know, probation operates, you know, theme of this podcast, maybe probation operates differently 
all over the country, right? But one thing we found in Minnesota was that like, you know, people were being put under conditions to abstain from any alcohol and any drug use while on, so alcohol while on probation, sorry, while under supervision. So, you know, alcohol is legal for adults Mm -hmm. and it's a substance that becomes suddenly illicit when you're under supervision. So for jurisdictions that are very committed to like this sort of abstinence model to substance use, they can continue to, I think, I'm fairly certain, can continue to make marijuana use illicit, right? And it can remain something that for folks under supervision is something is a way they can be governed and surveilled throughout their terms. But, you know, the other thing is the optimist in me wants to think that jurisdictions will kind of rethink marijuana as a sort of like demonized substance, right? And the way that, and I think in some ways that's very much started in some places, but again, remains to be seen. I think that's where research on specific practices and specific places matters. Yeah, and I think it's sort of, as you said, it's sort of like, will states take that into account in terms of if they're using it as sort of this hold on probation in terms of alcohol, how is that legislation even going to be taken into effect with a system like that? But Mm -hmm. you also talk about something called the penal welfare continuum. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So this is a term that comes from actually Bridal Horowitz and Catherine Beckett. They have a piece about the penal welfare continuum that really talks about this convergence of the criminal justice functions of the state with its welfare functions. Mm -hmm. So we tend to think of the, you know, criminal justice and welfare as these completely separate, distinct responsibilities of the state. But a really large body of work has shown that in many ways, sites of punishment and welfare actually kind of work together, sometimes at overlapping functions, particularly in this contemporary era, um, kind of large-scale welfare reform under the Clinton era and on particularly, that welfare services have become kind of more stigmatized and actually more disciplinary and focused on behavior modification in character. And at the same time, punishment sort of take is increasingly taking on responsibilities of actually care, healthcare, welfare, et cetera, right? And so we're seeing this overlap. And Fred of Horowitz and Beckett pushes to see this as this dynamic as actually a continuum where, you know, one side is much more completely punitive, right? We might think of just like jail or prison without any service whatsoever as being that side. And one being like sort of this more welfare, you know, services kind of without strings attached, without, you know, and that folks are kind of pushed along, we might see kind of different sites along this continuum, right? And so within this, there is, they call it the murky middle, which is where we, you know, where they put supervision, where we see probation. And it, this murky middle has a really kind of the greatest enmeshment of these two spheres, this interconnection between sort of discipline and care. Yeah, it sounds like you're speaking to like the ongoing dichotomy of rehabilitation and punishment and how there's been such a fluctuation Mm -hmm. between the two. That's really interesting. You talk about the murky middle. I mean, you've just briefly touched on it. Is how would you fit probation into this continuum? Could you elaborate a little bit more for us? Yeah, so for us, it's in our paper, Michelle and I describe how probation works as a kind of a hub in this murky middle. And what we mean by that is it 
it really shuttles people off to various sites of social services and enforces mm -hmm. their participation in those sites with the threat of violations of probation, right? And so, right, shuttling people off, it sends people off to these sites. And, you know, it's not like, when I say shuttle off, I mean, it's not that like a probation officer is providing health care in their office, right? They're mandating someone they supervise to, you know, go to a, for instance, like a private nonprofit drug treatment center, right? So they're sending them out and they're enforcing their participation in those spaces. And at the same time, those spaces kind of play a role in monitoring and surveilling folks who stay there or use those services. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of, so, you know, I'm doing work right now. We're evaluating a gang program in Denver. And a lot of those people are on probation. And yeah, you see, like, I, you know, I get to talk to their probation officers every now and then. And there's like, you know, we have them or we've referred them to receive these several services, one of them being this gang program that, you know, we're evaluating. Like, and, like they'll email or call like, Hey, did they show up? Like, did they actually like participate? Like basically they just kind of like keeping tabs on them. Yeah. So I, like, so I kind of like, it makes sense when you say like that, they're just like this hub that kind of shuffles them in and out of wherever it is that they need to go while kind of keeping like their thumb on them. Like you better be going there. Like, like I'm actually going to call this person and ask for like a progress report. And so we know that probation officers generally supervise people who have been convicted of a crime, but they're not necessarily being sent to prison, right? So like their sentence might be like three years of probation and they're given certain terms that they have to follow. So like we mentioned, you can't drink alcohol, you can't smoke marijuana. So there's certain conditions that you have to follow while you're on probation. And so, you know, we're talking about drug crimes and when talking to probation officers and like this kind of has been my experience a little bit has been that we see them kind of talk about this duality of roles that they have where they kind of have to straddle this weird line of being law enforcement, but also social workers. What exactly would you say is the function of a probation officer? And is this sort of duality of roles accurate? Yeah. So I think the duality is Accurate. I think it's like a tension that exists in this placement because of where it occupies, where it sits in the penal welfare continuum, right? So I think you explain the function really, really well, probation officer, right? It's to survive, to supervise someone who's sentenced to probation and kind of check in with them, make sure that they're fulfilling whatever conditions and requirements and mandates to the court. But, you know, at the same time, probation has this history of being a rehabilitation focus institution. Again, that's why it's seen as an alternative in many ways to incarceration. It's seen as a more rehabilitative space than a jail or a prison could be. And so there is a, a tension and it's also kind of must be hard to avoid when you just look at, when you really just think specifically about what a probation officer might be doing day to day. So like, just even think you know, as you try to enforce, right, it might be a law enforcement imperative to say, oh, you're not doing what you should do. But when you get down to why they're not doing what they should do, right, it's going to, it may very well be related to social material reasons. And so let's, I'll do something more concrete here. Like, let's give the example of, you know, it's a very typical condition that you have to maintain 
an address when you're on probation, right? Well, if you're homeless, it's very, you're going to not be in compliance with that very basic condition of probation. So as a PO, a probation officer, you see this, maybe you see someone who is not housed and they are, they don't have an address. You have a choice. You can file a violation against them. They've violated their probation, right? But they're going to probably continue violating their probation. And so the duality is there, right? Do I work in a sort of social service capacity to help this person find stable housing? Or do I say sort of like my job is to enforce the law here, right? So the duality is there. But the question is, or the question that raises, I think, is like how individual probation officers then sort of weigh those responsibilities against one another. And I think lots of things can shape that, like, you know, the very policies of the office they're in, the resources in their local area, right? Do they feel like they have the ability to help people access resources? But frankly, also their own discretion and decision-making when they're faced with those choices. So one area that's never really been discussed on TCA is drug courts. What are drug courts? What is their function? And how do they fit within this penal welfare continuum that you've been talking about? Yeah. So much like probation, in fact, many people in drug court are serving out their probation in drug court, right? So drug courts are really in the murky middle. And they kind of, they basically operate as a sort of intensive and sort of cohort-based probation in a way, right? So they seem to work with people suffering from substance use disorder. They, again, they pair this close surveillance and sort of threat of enforcement with a number of treatment resources, right? So it's more treatment intensive, but it's all together very intense, right? People often have a lot of conditions. They have to seek out a lot of treatment and they do potentially face consequences for not complying. Now, a little caveat on this is that like every other caveat that I've said is (laughs) they operate differently depending on where they are in the U.S., right? So there is this sort of central body called the, the NADCP, National Association of Drug Court Professionals. And there's sort of this recognized authority on the kind of best practices of how to run a drug court, but they're not a legal authority, right? So Often these drug courts are also local organizations as well. And, you know, the ways that they combine treatment and sanction, for instance, is sort of organizational. And by that, I mean, they develop organizational norms in their local space based on needs, rationales, etc. So in your opinion, two questions here. Do you think that these courts are effective at reducing drug-related crimes and do you actually think there's a need for a separate court in this sense? Yeah. So, good question. Tricky question. Tricky question, <laughs> I know. I think it's okay. It's, I, that's why I said, in your opinion, rather than give me the hard facts. <laughs> yeah. You know, I looked into some of the evaluations research for this, and it's not, this is not my wheelhouse, right? But my take from the meta-analyses of the research on drug courts is there seems to be some consensus that they overall reduce recidivism. However, I'm just a little bit, I think that that can pave over a lot of variation, right? And so as a qualitative scholar, I have a couple of concerns and would kind of reframe how we think about testing the outcomes, right? So 
as I said, these courts operate really differently. And a lot of the studies sort of operationalize. So this is Logan and Link have a 2019 article meta-analysis on this. And one thing they point out is that recidivism is operationalized somewhat differently in a lot of these studies. So it's a little bit, that's one challenge of coming up with sort of an overall idea. But, you know, they're also institutional structures themselves. And by that, I mean, like they have policies that sort of affect who actually gets in to drug yeah. courts. So my work is on, my dissertation work is on veterans treatment courts, which operate very much like drug courts and sort of follow very similar sort of best practices, at least in Minnesota. So in this case, there's a treatment team that makes a decision of those interested who actually gets admitted into the courts. So within this, there is sort of, in many places, this institutional incentive to admit people that are going to do well in the courts, right? And it makes sense on a human level. You don't want to, like, admit someone into this court who you think this person has got a really hard time following extremely intense court surveillance. Like, this court will be bad. They will just end up, like, they use graduated sanctions, meaning they start with the most limited and kind of move up, right? But like, if you don't have a sense this person is going to do well, this court will be bad for them. They will just be end up punished, essentially, without gaining the benefits of treatment, right? So, and then at a sort of higher institutional level, a lot of these courts operate under sort of the judiciary, and they're kind of accountable to those judicial authorities in terms of the outcomes for their court. So there's an incentive to produce good results, right? And so what happens is that the sample that we have for drug courts, I think could be, right, ends up being sort of cherry picked, right? So we have good results for this cohort of folks, but we don't know how to think about this model in terms of the larger criminal justice involved population, right? Maybe. So this is all, these are things I point out, I guess, as like a very qualitative and institutional like institutions focused scholar, right? These are the kind of difficulties of making sort of big policy statements on work or not work. So I think, you know, due to these concerns about their institutional structure, there's like kind of a filter into them and that they operate so wildly, sometimes differently. My perspective is that, you know, a more fine-grained question of, of like, who does this work for in what places and under what sorts of policies or conditions, right? So one concern is that, you know, courts that use a lot of jail, one of my big concerns is courts that use a lot of jail sanctions or move to jail sanctions quickly for potential violations are, I would be very concerned that they're producing worse outcomes, right? Not always fully understanding, like how destabilizing even a short-term stay in jail can be and even might sort of operationalize jail as a sort of treatment, right? So those are kind of concerns. And in terms of if it should still, if we need this separate court, yeah, I think, again, it's still, I don't have a yes or a no. I think it's an open question. And my concerns are more about how we deem people treatable or not treatable, right? And how those things can intersect with things like race and gender and class and status. Right. So, I mean, I would I would sort of connect these concerns to the observations of like Anjali Om, McDonough Merch and others 
about sort of the way that the contemporary opioid crisis has really been framed as a public health crisis, right? And primarily affecting white people. And thinking about that in comparison to the drug war, right, which is framed much more as drug use as a criminal act of primarily black and brown communities. So my worries are that like within the criminal justice system, we sort of have a history of sorting folks into these categories in ways that that can perpetuate inequality and access. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just have a yes or no answer? But yeah. we're like over 50 episodes in and I don't think we've been able to find one on anything we've talked about. <laughs> you. Yeah. And actually, so it's funny you mentioned some of like the impacts that jail can have on people. So our next episode that's going to release is actually looking at the impacts that jail has on like mental and behavioral health. So, oh my that's, gosh. so that's one yeah. to look out for. Okay, so related to drug use, often intertwined is addiction, right? So, and often we see drug addiction being discussed, depending on who you're talking to, we can see it discussed as this active choice that people make. And it's sort of this misfortune that they've really brought upon themselves. Is this really the right approach that we should be taking when like looking at addiction or should we be sort of reframing it? more through like a health lens of like illness and disorder. And this is the, like this more health approach is the right way. How does it then maybe change the way that we go about dealing with drug crimes? I mean, yes, this is a great and very nuanced question. So, I mean, you've talked about these really two predominant models of looking at drug use, right? So we have got, we've got the criminal justice. It's, you've made a choice to do this. And so, and it's something we don't want you to do. So we're going to disincentivize this choice in this sort of rational way by threatening you with jail or some other, you know, bad thing, (laughs) predominantly jail, right? The problem is, you know, the consequences of jail are very, very severe, right? And so, and really destabilizing as we've, we've pointed out. So with the treatment perspective, there is absolutely a potential for the notion of responsibility to change, right? So therefore the institutional reaction could look really different. If the root of like problematic drug use, for instance, is disease, then simply locking someone up is not only really pointless, right? Which is what a lot of the sort of drug court advocates argue. It's completely pointless. It doesn't work. It's not smart on crime. But it's also kind of inhumane, right, to continually lock people up or subject them to consequences. So this bigger question, though, is, like, how does it change with a treatment perspective? So I think that offering people treatment offers, like, some potential to at least change the institution that's dealing with them and hopefully ways that don't leave a permanent criminal record are less destabilizing. I will say that the sort of disease model of addiction does hold on to this idea of an individual difference. So while, you know, you're not responsabilized in the same way, if you are suffering from addiction or perceived that way, there are ideas that, of course, that different people are more susceptible to addiction than others, right? So it is a very individualizing perspective. And that's why I think that we have 
what we have now in, with drug courts and with many probation and other sorts of related sites is sort of this hybridized version that is both punishment and attempts at treatment, right? It takes this response. You still have sort of responsibility to go to treatment and comply with treatment and submit, you know, negative urine samples, et cetera, right? Even if there is sort of like a softening about this idea of the source of drug use. So for one thing, to really understand the sort of disease model, we would need, I think we would need to have more institutions that treat drug use that are accessible to people outside of the criminal justice system. So that's one thing, like that's not those exist for people with more money, right? But like not right. for the marginalized and the folks who are disproportionately caught up in the criminal justice system. I would also just just to like, you know, throw another wrench in there. I would add a third perspective. And that's sort of the comes from critical addiction scholars, which is essentially social structural, right? So one big name here is Bruce K. Alexander, who argues that societies actually manufacture addictions in ways. And he points specifically to social dislocation, meaning the removal of people from their close ties in family, community, culture, even spiritual ties from one another. And that addiction is kind of this way that people cope with this loss of this very significant human need. And kind of broadening out more when we're thinking about societies that remove people from their cultures, communities, families, right? And we just take a look at even the history of settler colonialism in our country, which not only displaced people from their land, but actually was a program of trying to destroy cultures. And furthermore, the slave trade, which separated families. And it seems like I'm getting far afield here, right? But these are really... This is really important historical fabric and the consequences of these huge social shifts are still very much with us. So I guess I just have this in in the background of my head when I'm thinking about this treatment versus punishment and trying to bring in the social structural perspectives, which is hard in these spaces, right? I do think treatment has a role to play. And I just wonder in the context we have now, what it means to subject people to sort of too short or brief treatment sometimes, and then return them into incredibly challenging circumstances. Like if we are taking critical addiction scholarship seriously, like returning people into societies that engender addiction and then just repunishing them over and over and over again. And at some point it's like, oh, you've had all the treatment resources. So now you're now we just think you're in that first category of people who are just making the choices, you know. So that's a bit of a long-winded response <laughs> to your question. I apologize, but I, I try to balance those three perspectives when I'm thinking about how when I'm thinking about how institutions are acting on on things like addiction. Right. No, that makes sense. But okay, so I think we've set up a good foundation to start getting into your paper. So the paper that we're going to talk about was authored by Victoria and her colleague, Michelle Phelps. It's titled Strong Arm Sobriety, Addressing Precarity Through Probation. And it was published in 2022 in Law and Social Inquiry. In the article, Victoria and Michelle draw on interviews with 166 adults that were on probation in Minnesota to examine how probation operates as a hub in the criminal justice system that directs people into services and prison 
they also introduced the concept of strong arm sobriety. So our first question for you about your paper is, what was the motivation behind this paper? And so what were the gaps that you were looking to address with this paper? Yeah, so I think kind of broadly, probation is just an incredibly important institution in American criminal justice, right? So my co-author, Michelle Belt, has done a lot of work on this, and she calls this mass probation. But by 2020, over half of people serving sentences were on probation. So despite how common it is, there's not very much work that frames it as an important site of governance itself, and particularly at this sort of murky middle space. And I think less of that work considers it in depth from the perspectives of people actually on probation. So that was a big motivation. We had this big interview pool and we were really hoping to understand how it is actually experienced by people who are on it. How do they understand governance? And so we looked into it and we, we were reading people's stories, we were interviewing them, and we were just kind of bowled over by how much probation and the experience of governance on probation itself was shaped around substance use conditions and treatments, right? Rather through mandates or just the simple surveillance of drug trusts or urinalysis ways. And so, as you mentioned in the intro, as probation worked as this hub, it was sort of a hub that seemed dominated by substance use in both directions, both in sanction and treatment. Okay, so in this paper, you introduced the idea of strong-arm sobriety. Can you explain to us what you mean with this concept? Yeah, so we're drawing off of Teresa Gowan and Sarah Whetstone's work on strong-arm rehab. And really, it's and we're just kind of broadening this term out to probation itself. So we specifically mean it's this coercive type of care that's needed out to adults on probation to both manage and punish drug and alcohol use while on probation. Right. And so you mentioned coercion. And so it kind of seems to go a little hand in hand with strong arm sobriety. Because there's a little more about like the coercion aspect, like who are the parties involved in coercion and maybe how do they coerce someone into sobriety? Yeah. So kind of in a variety of ways. So I think the PAO is, the probation officer is really pivotal here, but more broadly, treatment referrals are sort of backed by coercion. Meaning if the court or your probation officer orders you to some kind of treatment and you don't comply and they find out that you don't comply, you may be subject to criminal legal consequences such as having your probation revoked, right? So most centrally, the probation officer has that responsibility of making those decisions. But, you know, the sites that you referred to for treatment, as we referred to also, have a less direct role, right? They're not making decisions, but in many cases, they are reporting on the person on probation's compliance, right? So in our case, like folks who are either doing inpatient or sort of or outpatient drug care, often did their drug, their urinalysis at those treatment sites, right? So those treatment sites had to, you know, if it was a positive test, right, they had this connection with the PO to report that a positive test came through. Right. Okay, so getting into like your actual study, something that we noticed with your sample was like in the demographics, particularly with age, it seemed like you had a pretty even distribution with other groups kind of hovering in 
like that mid 20 percentage range. And so like you had 40 to 49 year olds making up 26% and over 50 making up about 27% of your sample with the caveat that this might look a little different between jurisdictions. Were you a little surprised to see people that old kind of in your sample somehow always kind of imagined younger people kind of being on, I mean, like there's nothing in that says that you can't be on probation when you're older. Right. But I guess we tend to think of offenders as being on the younger side. So were you surprised by the older people in your sample? Yes. Yes, we were. Yeah. Same reasons, the sort of youth crime curve and also just the idea that probation is perhaps sometimes seen as a first sort of sanction, right? And mm-hmm. getting into that graduated sanction, you would expect someone who's a little bit older to not necessarily and not necessarily be their first involvement or whatever. So yeah, for all those reasons, we were surprised. So I wouldn't see this age skew as necessarily representative of those on probation in Hennepin County. Our sample was purposively heterogeneous, meaning we just wanted to talk to people from multiple different backgrounds, ages, races, gender, sex, because we were trying to see the different pathways to and through probation. So I think what happened with that was just kind of how sampling works out. I think Mm -hmm. we interviewed, there certainly are older folks on probation in Hennepin County. That's certainly the case. And Hennepin County has kind of known for long (laughs) probation, not just Hennepin County, Minnesota is known for very long probation sentences. So in some cases, it was folks who had been on probation for a bit. But I think that we probably just interviewed some of the older folks, and they were just connected in networks of similarly aged folks with criminal justice involvement and probation, particularly. And I think it just kind of, they shared our study, and it sort of just naturally snowballed that way, organically, I should say organically snowballed that way. I'm speculating, but that would be my guess for why we see that view that way. I don't think we should take that to reflect that population per se. Right. Yeah. I just thought it was so interesting that they kind of shook out that way. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, I just like never imagined someone that's like over 50 being on probation, but I guess it does happen. Right. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So, like, kind of now getting to like the meat and potatoes of your paper, you split the paper into three processes of probation treatment, testing, and revocation. So, we want to start with treatment. Can you sort of discuss, give us kind of like a brief intro into what you mean by treatment with probation and then kind of what were your findings regarding this section of your paper? Yeah. So I'll just say like to this sort of operationalizing question, I think a little bit important here is the instrument we used to interview. So we used like an interview guide that actually combined closed-ended questions with open-ended questions. We often did, so there was some Likert scale, there was some like one word, and then there was like some like, tell me about your experience of this type question, right? right? And so how treatment came out in across those interviews was we asked people about the referrals that they received from their probation officers and if they were either recommended or mandated, and then what those obviously were. So this really varied between inpatient and outpatient treatments. Local groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous or NA, and a variety of classes that actually weren't necessarily drug treatment, right? Like anger management type, parenting classes, domestic violence classes, et cetera. So those were kind of all put into the 
those were sort of the treatment, the forms of treatment that people experience. Right. And so what was sort of like probation's role in like the strong arms of Brady as it related to like the treatment aspect? Yeah. So what we found across our big sample was that treatment was in some ways like a double-edged sword. So I'll explain this, this first piece, right? So treatment services were really important to people on probation. And in fact, when people thought that probation was helpful, they most commonly said because it helped them with alcohol and substance use, and that treatment was really core to that, right? Drug treatment was also an access point for other needed services that weren't necessarily drug treatment. So we also had folks who were routed into drug treatment, but ended up getting attached to like psychotherapy that way. People got temporary housing that way. And so, you know, on the flip side, when people were dissatisfied, most commonly it's because they didn't, they felt like their PO didn't give them any services or help them address, you know, reach out to services. But, you know, the double-edged sword piece, importantly, treatment was really nested within this coercive scaffolding, right? So this meant that, as we've talked about, treatment could be another node of surveillance for people. And folks were often compelled to take treatment, whether they wanted it or not, or felt like it fit with their situation or not. And so at the same time, treatment could be very perceived as very demeaning, and it could be perceived as ill-placed. And we talk about throughout the paper, this idea of misrecognition. People felt like in some cases, what they were really struggling with was really misrecognized by the way they were shuttled off to treatment. And so in our paper, I won't go too in-depth on this question, but we profiled two people more in-depth who are kind of on opposite ends of this, right? So we profiled Donna, she's a 43-year-old Black woman and who spoke quite highly of the treatment she received. So she had had this long history of criminal justice involvement, had always been kind of just processed in and out. And then she's arrested and she's evaluated and she's sent to drug treatment in Hennepin County where she gets, again, access to a plethora of resources. So she's like, yeah, I don't want to be on probation, but it's worth it (laughs) to get access to these things I've never had access to. For her, particularly therapy was really critical, right? And she found out for her case, it was The drug use was, again, coping for not having resources to kind of deal with and address her long history of trauma. And probation just ended up being the place where she was able to access those resources. And even addiction (laughs) was this idea that she was addicted was sort of her access point to these other services. At the same time, you know, for some folks, like I said, treatment wasn't welcome. It wasn't well-placed. And it was really problematic. So we talk about Carl. He's a 60-year-old Black man. And he was serving probation and parole concurrently. And in his situation, he was sort of on the brink of homelessness, right? He was staying in a halfway house when we interviewed him. And he already overstayed his term there. He basically worked out a deal with the administrator of the halfway house to stay longer. But he had no money. He was on disability. But all the payments went to the halfway house except for a very tiny amount, which is Mm-hmm. typically how halfway houses work, right? So right. no capacity to actually save this money that was supposed to, you know, theoretically be coming to him. And he wanted to access this housing program, but that housing program required that you be homeless for 15 days to be eligible for the services. And he was like, okay, in 15 days, I'm homeless. My 
PO is going to find out and he's going to violate. I know he will violate me for that. So he was in this kind of rock and a hard place and his PO really wanted him to go to drug treatment. And he's like, I don't have a drug problem. I just, I have a housing problem. Right. And so this is sort of that where treatment becomes this shuttling process, right? For him, for Carl, like drugs had nothing to do with what he was going through. And he knew he'd already kind of gone through the circuit that like, this was going to be another dead end, another temporary housing situation at the end of which he was going to have to struggle yet again to find something more sustainable. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how that goes because I've seen and I've talked to people who are also on probation and you do have like the people like, you know, they put me in like parenting classes and it's been great. And the other people are like, they keep making me take like these drug tests and I don't use drugs. So <laughs> I don't know why they like that's part of my probation. Right. But speaking of that, so one of the things that we've talked about is like terms of probation and Drug and alcohol testing is a pretty common one that we've seen where people are, you have to go and test to, so that they can make sure that you're not using drugs or alcohol. Can you tell us more about your findings as it related to testing and probation? Yeah. So for one thing, you know, testing varied across our sample a lot, right? So some people in the very most limited form of supervision didn't actually have to test. And then you had other people, it varied up to where some people were testing multiple times a week, right? And Minnesota has this, and I don't know if they still use it, Hennepin used this color wheel system, which some folks are assigned to a color, and then they are supposed to call in. And, you know, in theory, it's like a wheel that spins. And if it lands on your color, then you have to test. So it's it's the idea of Mm -hmm. introducing randomization into this. To hope, you know, the idea is to prevent people from gaming the system, essentially. Right. And so the higher your level of supervision, the more you had to call, right? And so people had to go to a central, typically a central testing facility downtown and submit a, a sample during business hours, which was another kind of difficulty, right? If you have to get off work, if you don't have a car, Minneapolis is, has pretty inadequate. It has some public transportation, but it might take you a really long time to get there, right? If that's your only means. So again, it was sort of a double-edged sword. I think for some people, particularly folks, and for some reason, particularly men in our sample that identified as having addiction issues personally, they sort of welcomed testing as this sort of coercive motivation in a sense. And we talk about a few of those folks. But in this section, we really focus on people who found it demanding, intrusive, and sort of this misrecognition piece who felt like either I don't really use drugs, like you were saying, with who you spoke to, or like, yeah, I use them, but like, not really that, you know what I mean? Like, there's, I'm not a, I'm not someone who needs to be sort of. Right. Like, it's um, not really an issue. Like It's not an issue. It's not problematic in my life. Right. And so. We actually talk about folks in our sample who actually found ways to continue using substances while taking these drug tests, even with the sort of randomized system. We call this kind of compensatory use. And this was really common with marijuana, right? And this just goes down to the simple science of drug testing, right? When you use marijuana, especially if you're a somewhat regular user, that remains in your system for a really long time. Like if you're a regular user up to a month or more, 
after you stop using it. So it's like easy to catch someone for using marijuana, right? Right. And so the people who had kind of had marijuana as part of their habits and their life and now suddenly had to, you know, submit these tests often compensated with other substances. And we talked about that. And perhaps ironically, right, other substances such as alcohol and cocaine just go through your system a lot quicker. It's actually easier to use them and still submit a clean or a sort of a negative sample regularly. So we kind of focus on this intersection of people who are like, yeah, I use, it's not really an issue, but still like really were worried about or their lives were sort of shaped by having to submit these negative samples. And one person we talk about is Adam. He's a 29-year-old white man who he actually was arrested in a different state for fraud, nothing to do with drug use. He ends up moving because he kind of, the arrest is like a bigger downturn in his life. So he moves to Minnesota where he has family. And when he gets transferred, he starts to having to submit drug tests, right? He never had to do that before in the jurisdiction he was formerly at. And he was a regular weed user, right? So he kept having many positive samples. And at first his PO was not really bothering him about it. So he just was like, okay, I'll just keep, I don't know, I'll keep doing this. And then she really, really worried about it. So she ordered him multiple times to get what's called the rule 25 assessment, which is just, it's a court order for an evaluation. It's supposed to find out like, are you, do you have a substance use disorder or not? So he has this rule 25 assessment. The assessor says, no, there's no addiction issue. His PO orders him to get another assessment. He does. That assessor says, nope, there's no substance use issue here. And then his probation officer is pretty mad. And she, according to him, she says, like, if you don't go to treatment, I'm going to violate you on probation. Well, he doesn't have the means to pay for treatment or insurance because that's very, very expensive, right? So in Minnesota, if you get a Rule 25 assessment, and you're at the proper income threshold, and they're found that you have a substance use disorder, the state will pay for your treatment, right? So that's basically the only way he could have accessed it. So not wanting to go to jail, he goes to a rehab, checks himself in, talks to the assessor and says, look, I need you to, he says, they basically manipulated the assessment so that he had this result of having a substance use disorder so that he could actually afford the treatment he needed. And yeah, I mean, it was all because of this sort of testing regimen, but the experience didn't make him think anything. Like he was eventually moved to outpatient and he he admitted like, yeah, I still occasionally use cocaine. It just goes out of your system. It's fine. I go to treatment. My counselor there is great, but like, you know, I keep up appearances basically to, and I submit my test when I need to. And that's where we are. And my probation officer is much happier now, but it really kind of goes to show you, he had to really kind of reshape his life and take these big risks about getting into treatment, just really to avoid a violation. Yeah. That's crazy. We like put down these sanctions that don't really think about like these unintended consequences they might have. Like, yeah. Yeah, like this dude had like not a drug problem and now he's like doing cocaine so that he can test clean <laughs> yeah. like but and you mentioned that he was threatened with revocation which is like the last section of your paper and so yeah. 
just briefly revocation occurs when someone violates one or more of the terms of their probation and they're brought back into court to face a judge and face the possibility of maybe going back to prison, right? That's kind of like the quick and dirty of what a revocation is. What were your findings with revocations? Yeah, so I think that for many of our participants, revocation really undergirded the stress of probation, right? It was kind of the looming threat that made the experience really, really difficult. And when it came to substance use, it was, I think, that it was often used to coerce treatment, right? So it was kind of like where the continuum comes together almost. It was like two faces in a sense. For a lot of people, treatment and revocation were kind of always on the other side of one another. And so just kind of in the interest of time, I guess I'll I'll talk about Randall. So Randall is someone we profiled in depth and he's a 39-year-old mixed race Black man who was kind of found eligible through an assessment for this sort of high level of state resources and services because he suffered from some severe mental illnesses. So while he was on probation, he had this case manager who was helping him out and he had his probation officer who he thought, you know, he felt like he generally had a good relationship with. And, you know, one day he misses a meeting with his case manager and at the same time, you know, and so shortly after there, that his probation officer shows up and does a surprise visit at his place where he's living. And during that, PO does a search and drugs are found, small amount of drugs. Randall says, I was actually just going to sell them. I know I shouldn't have had them, right? But, you know, it wasn't, he emphasized it was a small amount. Well, he was sent to jail for that. And then his probation officer said, you can get out of jail if you go to drug treatment. And Randall refused for a while because he kept saying, I really don't have a drug problem. <laughs> like, And he stayed in jail for months, had this standoff with his probation officer about it. And so in this, he ultimately went to drug treatment, by the way, because that was the way to get out of jail. So that's what I mean kind of by this, this other face. But in this case, again, revocation is a space where Substance use or, sub, you know, even just having substances on your person, right, gets sort of misrecognized again and treatment gets used in tandem with revocation to coerce people's behaviors. But it's, yeah, a pretty broad use. And I think we're really struck in that instance that, like, the support he was offered through the states really did work in tandem with law enforcement there, right? We, right. We can't show it, but like it seems that the fact that his PO decided to do a surprise visit shortly after he missed this case management meeting, you know, is concerning. It speaks to those those kind of surveillance nodes that these support pieces play. Okay, so and last question about your paper and just briefly given everything that we've discussed, what would be some policy and practice implications that maybe come out of your work? Yeah, so I think this is the hard one, but broadly rethinking the criminal justice system as a sort of gateway or gatekeeper to treatment and services. You know, ideally, we'd build a more just society where these things are, healthcare is much more widely available and you don't have to get arrested to get into it and you don't have to like feign an addiction to get housing <laughs> or accept this idea of addiction just to get housing. So there's a bigger, broader question here of like the placement of healthcare. 
But I think there are specific things jurisdictions can do too. And one is drug testing itself as an indicator of compliance with probation, right? As you've noticed, and as we noticed in our sample, certainly some people who were ordered testing identified as having drug use issues, but some people, their case had nothing to do with substance use whatsoever, right? Drug testing was just like another mechanism to kind of get them disciplined. And it just seems like it's got a lot of unintended consequences and it's a very, and if criminal justice workers could appreciate just how intrusive it is to be asking someone to give their bodily fluids on a, at a moment's notice and all the hassle that goes with that, I think that could be really, that alone could help. So to their credit, Hennepin County has actually begun to really question this themselves. I'd like to like, it was our paper that changed them <laughs> <laughs> or our like research. And they did. And in one announcement, they cited our research. But I actually think that also, and perhaps more importantly, was the pandemic, right? So right. as the onset of the pandemic, as I'm sure happened in other jurisdictions, Hennepin County began to think like, are we going to ask someone to get on public transportation during this massive pandemic to do these things? Like, that's, you know, again, to their credit, yeah. they, they saw the issues with doing that. And so they're reevaluating completely that practice. And I think more jurisdictions can do that. And then I'll just kind of go back to the, the idea of jail sanctions as a way to encourage treatment compliance. Like, again, I'm so excited for your next podcast to drop because I think like, <laughs> It'll probably speak to this much more coherently than I can, but jail is its own thing and it is destabilizing in and of itself, right? And so to kind of pair that with treatment, I think is undermining the larger goals of these offices. Right. So yeah, so that episode actually dropped before yours. So I, I was going to give like a quick spoiler alert, but people will probably have already listened to it by the time this comes out. So they'll know. You edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> But so, you know, just if you have a few more minutes, we have like our last question. And this was about your dissertation, which you mentioned mm -hmm. at the top of the episode, which I, if I remember correctly, was Veterans Courts. Yeah. So maybe you could spend like, like a minute or two telling us more about what it is you're doing. That sounds pretty interesting, actually. Yeah. So I'm really looking at the establishment and expansion of Veterans Treatment Courts in Minnesota. And basically how it happens. So the way I think veterans treatment courts are kind of interesting within this larger treatment court setting is that at least in Minnesota, they've worked really hard to admit veterans with violent cases into treatment courts. And so we have this dynamic of like understanding violent crime is treatable, which is a little less common, right? It's in today, right? Typically violent crime is punished much more punitively, even as we sort of question this model of mass incarceration and there's been some moves to limit for instance drug sentences silent sentences for violent crime have actually just either stayed the same or gone up right so i thought that made me kind of curious about what's going on and made me curious to understand it politically right mm -hmm. and so i do a couple of things here i did ethnographic observation in hennepin county before the pandemic <laughs> for 18 months, just in their court, kind of seeing how the court operated itself. But I also, there was a big sort of bill that went through the legislature 
in Minnesota and was eventually passed. So I did ethnographic observation in bill committee hearings and bill launch events and basically the whole lead up. That was during the pandemic when like legislative activity was all on YouTube, right? So it was an opportunity to see these things being debated that way and just place this process of passing this bill. And so this bill was interesting because it kind of standardized this VTC diversion process across the state, veterans treatment court process across the state. And so what I found and what I'm kind of developing now is that, yes, this is a court for veterans and people really care, particularly about veterans as a population, but that they simultaneously that it wasn't sort of enough that they were veterans and that what is actually happening here is criminal justice actors are thinking about trauma and how do we think about trauma as a predecessor to to violent crime and what does that mean for these spaces and how do we build reform on this idea, on these notions of what trauma is. And so it's kind of this larger question of like, how do court actors deal with like science in a sense, like medical expertise that is itself like up in the air and evolving, right? And how do they operationalize that within these spaces as they're trying to like build reform and change things? That sounds like quite the undertaking and super interesting. So I'll be looking forward to your work there. That's all the questions we had for you today. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know this episode was a little unique in some ways. (laughs) Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for? Any, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I check out my work. This paper I talked about today is in Law and Social Inquiry, as you mentioned. So check that out. I have a Twitter. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would say, oh, this will this will be too late. I was going to say, like, check out your local elections for district attorney, but it's going to, this is going to drop later. So never mind. Probably. That's all right. <laughs> yeah. So I would just say, no, you can check out my stuff. I'm not super accessible, but I am on Twitter. So perfect. And we'll put your handle in the description. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate yeah. it. It was fun talking to you. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. time.